Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of the ALS Association podcast. I'm your host, Communication Director Tony Heil, here at the Greater Philadelphia Chapter. And this is our 40th year as a chapter. It's a big anniversary year and really one of the um, bedrocks of our chapter, the most important thing in terms of the success of our work of reaching out to patients and making sure they get the care they need and are connected to research and clinics and all sorts of services. It is not just our donors, not just our sponsors, but primarily our social workers. Our patients would not be able to know about the services they need. We wouldn't learn about the things that they're asking if it wasn't for a dedicated team of social workers who are on the front lines of patient care every day. Um, As anyone who's listening to this knows, my grandfather passed away from ALS about 10 years ago now. And I know that the value that social workers have in the lives of people with ALS or any other disease. And before we start this conversation that I had with three of our great social workers, I know that they're the reason why we have success as an organization. And three of those people who are doing that work every day and doing a lot of it, I would listen to like how exhausting your day must be and you guys look like you're in like early 20s based on how energetic and lively you are. That's just lovely. But all because you, know, you guys have a big workload. And so the people on our podcast today, two people who've done it before, Melissa Call, Ann Cooney, and our first, our first podcast, Janie Eskovitz. Did I say your name right? Yes, you did. I did. I've been practicing it. <laughs> Are here at our podcast. So, Melissa, hi. Hi, everyone. And? Hello. Emily and Janie. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity, Tony, to recognize us. We appreciate that. Well, uh, March is Social Work Month, and it was, this was Janie's idea. I posted something, a picture up, and Janie said, hey, we have a lot of great people. You do podcasts. Why don't we do this? And I'm, I thank you for organizing this, because it's not like you guys have a ton of free time. Right. So, yeah. so speaking of free time, the, the your time. Um, first, let's go into how long have you guys been social workers, and how long have you been with the chapter? Because I know Janie, you can start. We t- we talked when you first started here, and you had been here for like a week. Right. But you've been doing this for quite a while in terms right, of social right. work, right? Yeah, I have about twenty years of experience with social work. I would say primarily interdisciplinary uh, medical. What does interdisciplinary mean? That I means know what it means. That but. we work with a team approach. Mm-hmm. So I've always worked with a doctor, a physical therapist, occupational therapist, and being part of a team approach, which is very similar to what we do in our clinics here at the ALS Association. So I come to the ALS Association, um, I will be two years. So it seems like a long journey, but it's just been two years and it's been a, a wonderful experience and journey so far. And you were doing interdisciplinary work. Was it disease-related like ALS? Or? It was medical. So I've had a handful at that time of ALS, but it was I worked at Moss Rehabilitation Hospital, mm-hmm. Rimar Rehab, and then I worked for home care at Abington. That's great. Yeah. And Anne, how long have you been doing social work and plus working at the chapter? I have, I have over 20 years of experience as well with social work. Pretty much all medical social work. I've worked in hospitals, nursing homes, um, hospice, rehab. Uh, I did a very short stint of like individual and family counseling, uh, but primarily it's all been medical social work. And I've been here with the chapter. It'll be almost four years uh, in July as a chapter social worker, but I came on a year prior to that doing the Cherry Hill Support Group. That's how I began with the ALS Association. Did that for a year and then came on as a staff social worker. And we'll talk about those support groups in a bit, because mm-hmm. uh, that's a big part of what you guys do. 
So, but before that, Melissa, how long have you been a social worker? How long have you been here? So I've been in practice as a social worker for over 20 years, um, mostly medical and hospitals and hospice. And I've been with our chapter almost nine years. In September, it'll be nine years. I can't even believe that as I'm saying it. Um, and I just love the organization and love what we do and how we impact families. Because you say we impact families because I don't think there's anyone that impacts families as directly as you guys, as social workers, do because people go to the clinics every three months, mm -hmm. usually, right? Mm -hmm. And you guys can see people any day. Right. We're definitely the front line. We're often the first um, person that they meet from the chapter when they're initially diagnosed. And, and then we go through this journey with them throughout um, the whole process of the diagnosis. And oftentimes the last, mm -hmm. you know, if it's not dealing with death and dying issues uh, prior to their passing, working with hospice, um, and helping the families cope after death. So we're oftentimes the first they see and the last they speak to. Yes. That's a really important thing. And, and really, it shows a lot of trust that they have in you, that you are that person at the end that they talk to, because there's so many people that they could interact with and they go to uh, Janie or Anne or Melissa or one of the other social workers as the person to say, hey, this is so-and-so has passed away. So you've obviously developed a bond not just with a patient, but with a wider family network. Yeah. Yes. So we're here with 60 years of social work experience. Yeah. And, and that's really, like, that's important for our chapter. We're not just, not that new people with social work aren't good, but one, I imagine with social work, there's a lot of burnout. It's yes. a lot of hard work, yes. and yet you guys have been in for a long time, so that's good for us. Uh, but you know, tell me a little bit about about that because you guys put in a lot of work, not just before but here. How many people do you see? Because you have a caseload, right? Yeah. Yes. We each have a caseload, well over a hundred patients mm -hmm. um, that we manage, and obviously with the way this disease goes with its ups and downs and plateaus is how we manage our caseloads. We'll be very involved or people are doing well and don't really need us and then reach out to us but we try to establish a relationship so that they know they can reach out to us at any time or we'll check in and see how things are going. And by seeing them at clinic and from visit to visit and seeing how they're progressing and how their needs are changing we'll kind of determine how we follow along with these patients. Um, you know, if there's been, really been a lot of big changes that may warrant us going out to do a home visit just to see how they really are managing at home, um, or just in conversations with our patients between clinic visits, if there's a lot of stress, struggle, things happening that will, you know, make us make the decision and offer the home visit idea. And most families take that and it really, it sheds so much more light on the situation when you can see patients in their homes, with their families, how they're managing. Mm -hmm. um, it just, it opens the doors much more for much more of a relationship. And I think it just builds trust and confidence for them to reach out to us all the more to continue to be involved and offer more services. So that, you know, we could have several home visits every week with different families and different patients every week of, of each month. So it just, and it does wax and wane. You could have a week where you're, it's not so intense and then you can have a week where it's just, it seems like everything is just happening at once right. with multiple people. It, it's almost like a... Epidemic. Like when there's a full moon. <laughs> yeah, exactly, when there's a full moon. So. Well, I would imagine that 
looking after and paying attention to 10 people that had ALS would be a lot to keep in your head and do. Yeah. A hundred people, that is a lot. I think people, not that they don't appreciate what you do, but it's hard to appreciate that amount of stuff, not just to do, but just to keep in your head and do well and just throw all those balls in the air. Now, Janie, you, you talked about the interdisciplinary approach, working with a team. How, how do you work with a team to manage those big numbers and all those people? Because with ALS, it's not just so you have a hundred or fifty or whatever people at one time. They're all different. So how do you use that team approach to help out? I think the team approach helps in validating some of the issues that are addressed and that they're not just being brought up by myself, um, that a PT may support it, that the doctor may support it. So you're working as a team um, to develop a very safe care plan. And when you have a team, you have numbers and support that helps us with an ultimate goal of safety and of care. Mm -hmm. I think the other really nice aspect about this team is you may have a patient who's really struggling or crashing that may require not just myself coming out, but it might require a Lisa Brownlee or assistive technologist to get involved and we could go visit that person together. Or Gail Hausman and, Our mental and health I nurse, for mental yeah. health, you know, the mental health component of things. So it's sometimes when we're doing our visits, we're going jointly with someone else on the ALS team, which again, I think just offer so much more to our patients and families because we've got two people coming in with areas of expertise to really eyeball the situation and provide the support that's needed. And also our accessibility to the other team members to report back and then collaborate and make further recommendations maybe based on what we saw in the home visit. Mm -hmm. So it's really a lot of collaborative work. Even amongst the three of us as social workers, mm -hmm. if one of us has a challenging case, we'll talk to each other and brainstorm or make sure, you know, we we are in tap with the most current resources. So we we even just three of us work as a team. Well there's a lot of phone calls between the three of us saying, I have a question or I have a situation. Right. What do you think of this? What do you think you know, this is my thought, what do you think? Um, or resources that we're not aware of, you know, mm -hmm. do you guys know of something that could help with this particular patient and their situation? So we do collaborate an awful lot. Three social work brains are better than one. <laughs> <laughs> and you have more than three. There's other people here. Like, there's, there's people like Wendy Barnes yeah. and yes. others. Yes, yes, Mary Beth. Yeah. 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 yeah, we all help each other in different areas. I think within this organization we're so lucky, and I've always said, um, compared to my other experiences as a social worker working for the chapter has been so amazing because you almost feel like Mary Poppins with this whole bag full of stuff that you can offer. A lot of times in social work you're used to saying no that's not available, there's no funding, this, you know, there's nothing we can do where here we have so much to offer through the amazing programs that we have that are funded through our donors and um, the services that we provide and and the comprehensiveness of clinic. It just, it's such a different feeling as a social worker, which is nice and probably helps for us in, in how, you know, we avoid our own caregiver burnout. Yeah. You know, because it, yeah, to, it gives you such a feeling of satisfaction to be mm -hmm. able to offer something to somebody that truly is going to give them relief. Yeah. And it makes you feel good at the mm -hmm. end of the day that you've been able to help somebody in that way. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's what keeps a lot of us going here whether it's you guys on the front line or, mm -hmm. or you know, people on the back end who do the IT and yeah, processing because we all yeah. we all get connected. Right. And so we see it in, in a less direct way usually. 
and yet you see it firsthand. Yeah. So you're talking about the positive aspect. What 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 do you provide? Like if you go either any of you to meet with someone that has ALS and their caregiver, because you rarely talk to just one person, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, oh, so what are the conversations like? Your first conversation, what do you... Well, I mean, I think we're seasoned, so it's not like you're reading an intake, you know. Right. You just have a conversation, mm-hmm. and during that conversation, you learn a little bit about the way these people live, what's important to them, um, what are their hobbies, what are their interests. You begin to see how they cope with things. Um, you see, uh, find out a little bit about their finances. And then a light bulb goes on. Well, we could maybe offer this or that. So you give them an, a little bit of an overview of their services that we can offer. And then as time goes on, we see when they're ready to implement those programs, whether it be county supports or services through us, getting them connected with the VA system. And one really important thing is to empower these families. Mm-hmm. We're not coming in telling them what to do we want to give them power because with this diagnosis so much is being taken away from them so we want to meet them where they are some families are very open to services some families are very resistant so it's very important for us to listen and to see where these people are coming from and then develop a safe care plan yeah to piggyback on that it's like you know when they're first diagnosed it I, I can't imagine but it must be so so overwhelming and just trying to really hear where they are at that moment and how they're accepting or not accepting of the diagnosis they've just received and then just kind of starting from that point and moving forward with them and some people it's quite a process to get themselves to the point where they think okay I do need help and I can't do this and uh, and they're reaching out to us whereas others are still very resistant and still saying I can do this I don't need it when they really do but I, I try to appreciate the fact that they have to come to terms on this mm-hmm. on their own. And sometimes it might be not the greatest of situations, but I have to respect the fact that they are gradually working through this process and, and they need to get where they need to be before they're ready to say, I need this help and I'm ready to take this help and I'm ready to say that I can't do this by myself. And I think that's a big piece of it as well. Yeah. It's, it's, I can't even imagine. It's got to be so difficult. I think especially on that initial meeting, if someone's just diagnosed, often we see them right after the neurologist gives the diagnosis, if it's the first time they're hearing it, a lot is just normalizing, you know, it's okay and your head is probably spinning right now and um, like just more immediate, like is someone able to drive home here or do you have someone in the waiting room? Some more just immediate needs or or just introducing ourselves and letting them know that we're going to be there through this journey to help support them and educate them and, and advocate for them. Yeah. Um, but a lot of times it's really basic, just normalizing. It's okay if you can't really talk right now or it's okay. You're not going to be able to process all this. This will be ongoing conversations that we have. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times that's very reassuring. I've had times where then I meet people at clinic that I met maybe a month ago at diagnosis and they remember my face, but they'll say, I don't remember anything we talked about. And that's okay. That's why we're here. And we'll, you know, continue the conversation. And, and sometimes it just takes time, I think, to process everything. Yeah. 
I agree. I think also, you know, we know of in our own personal lives that maybe we've been challenged by mm -hmm. loss and death. And wouldn't it, it be nice to know that someone comes to us <coughs> and says, hey, I'm here on this journey with mm -hmm. you and I'll hold your hand the best that I can to walk you through this horrible experience, but you won't be alone. Yeah. And so it's not like we're with them every day, but they right. have that name, they have that face. And if they don't know where to turn in this very difficult navigating this system of medical care and so forth, that they have our card and our name and they can call us. That and is really key, Janie. I think sometimes that's, if that's the only message I get across on that initial visit, that if you don't know, call me. And if yeah. I don't have the answer, we have a whole team behind us and we'll try and figure it out together. Yeah. Or I'll connect you to the right person. But sometimes that's the goal of the first meeting is just for them to have your card and know that we're going to be there. Yeah, I always say there's no dumb question. There's mm -hmm. no, just don't hesitate to pick up that phone to call because if I can't help you, I will get you to the person who will help you. And that I, I can only imagine how much patience it takes on you guys because you have to deal with people who are in a difficult emotional state. Mm -hmm. You probably want to be like, no, do these things. This mm -hmm. is like, you. you yeah. And yet, you're, none of you are the kind of people that said, do this and push it at them and walk away. Right. It's, it's all about listening first. So I, I really appreciate that. Now, Janie, you talked about a care plan. So, and Melissa, you talked about all the services you're happy to provide. And so when you go for a care plan, is it, obviously it's different for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. So do you, do you go and say, here's what you're going to need, here's what you might need? Because people don't always need the same thing. So right. uh, what does it mean to make a care plan? Well, you're really assessing the situation. Mm -hmm. So if someone says, oh, um, Mr. Smith just fell. My husband just fell a couple of times this week. He's having difficulty getting up and down the steps. A light bulb goes off. Maybe we need to get a PT out there and assess for a stair glide. Maybe it's time to look at a medical alert button. Maybe it's time to look at their long-term care policy and see if they have any services for help in the home. Mm -hmm. So there's little signals from the family that we get. If they say nothing's wrong and everything's good, that alarms me as well. Mm -hmm. I'm fine, so, fine, so fine, fine, fine. We have some people that <laughs> yeah. do that. Yeah. And so, then we have people that are fully functioning. You know, as this disease is, it's different for every person, fully functioning, and they want all their ducks in a row. They want to plan, plan, plan. Mm -hmm. And and so you just meet them where they are. If they are that yeah, I mean, planners, you educate them on what's available down the line if they were to need it. So everybody's different, and that's what I think is the most important part. If you're someone that's so resistant, you don't want to go in there and tell them, well, eventually you have the option of hospice or, you know what right. I mean? Like, it's, you just you meet them where really, they are. You really, you really have, to, have to judge the situation yeah. and judge their ability to... Take in the information that you're offering. Some people just are not ready to hear certain things, and you have to kind of go stage by stage with them. Whereas others, like Melissa said, are very much want to be organized. They want to have a plan. They want to look to the future, and we want to be ready before things start to happen. And and that's wonderful to, to work with people like that. But there are those who, you know, kind of flying by the seat of their pants, and they're okay with that. That's how they operate. So you have to learn how to function mm -hmm. in all types of situations and try to support them at the same time and encourage them but not push so hard right yeah, and I think I guess people don't know what they don't know that's my, right. my experience here I, I, I've said this before my, my grandmother on my mom's side had Parkinson's my dad's dad at ALS my mom had a healthcare background a bit so she knew questions to ask mm -hmm. my dad wonderful dad wonderful person 
not a not a dumb man by any. He's a very smart person, but he didn't know what he didn't know when it came right, to like. Right. So you guys are there to. Katie, you were just saying, I had a I recently had a family member who had a fall, and I wouldn't have thought those things. I would have thought one of those things. Right. And yeah, right. you're like, here's things to do. Right. A whole host of things. I imagine that can be kind of overwhelming for someone. Like, well, what do I pick? So right, do right. you do you help them guide those? Yeah, decisions? we help guide them. Sometimes money dictates it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes their insurance dictates it. Um, we try to empower them too to learn about what their benefits are, and we also have these families where one of the family members are on board and the patient is not. Right, and they're really tough when you have that obstacle. Right, where one's resistant to accept it, but yet the other person is not. So I have found them to be very challenging as well. Yeah, just trying to write a note here, but I. I don't have a pen, so I was writing my phone. Um, well, don't Social workers <laughs> <are> always <laughs> have pens. Social workers always have a pen, and but we're always that, that reminded me. And we had done a podcast before, which anyone can find, um, about navigating through insurance and healthcare and how challenging that is. That doesn't get any less challenging with any laws right. making things better or worse, as we can see can happen. So, how much of your guys' job is just helping people with the challenge of healthcare? Well, we certainly, we try to educate them on, we, we try to encourage them to educate themselves on what their health insurance plans offer and don't offer. What type of coverage, specifically with ALS, coverage for durable medical equipment is crucial. So we really try to start, you know, just having that discussion with them so they can get a complete and full understanding of what their insurance will and will not pay for. Some people are very much ready, okay, I'm going to find this out. They do it. They, they learn. They educate themselves. Some people are completely overwhelmed by that whole aspect. So, yeah, we will make the calls for them. We will investigate their insurance plan for them to give them a rundown of exactly what their coverage is. Um, you know, many of our patients are younger and still working when they are diagnosed, so we help uh, support them through the whole process of applying for Social Security Disability, which allows them to get Medicare as their insurance coverage and we educate them on then looking into the supplemental Medicare plan or the Medigap plans that would go along with their Medicare once they're approved and so forth. Um, And again, you know, with our VA patients, we really educate them and get them pointed in the right direction as far as applying for their VA benefits um, and we help them through that whole process. So it, again, it goes back to how much the patient and or family want to do really or willing to do or understand what to do and then we kind of pick up on those cues and assist them as we need to assist them. Some people handle it all, no questions asked. Others really struggle and then we step in and, and assist them as best we can with everything. That's a that's a lot to put in because I imagine like the rules change, insurance changes mm-hmm. every year. It does. Every so you guys have to keep up with a different. lot of stuff. Yeah. You almost have like every month you can call and get a, a yeah. new rundown on what the plan offers. Mm-hmm. So it is. It's it's overwhelming. Even for us at times, and yeah. we work in the field and have been doing this for years, it can be very overwhelming. So if you get somebody who's never had to do this, doesn't understand insurance, right. it's a lot. And understandably so. It's a lot. So that's one of, I mean, that's why we're here. It's one of the things that we're able to offer. So, so speaking of things you offer, um, you go in with a plan, you have introductory conversations, you can help people with navigating the process and Melissa you had talked about how you're going to tell them about the services um, I'll, I'll just go an example like you tell them if they need a wheelchair and you tell them why they need it and when they need it you don't tell them like directive but 
you go through with insurance, like, well, this is why you should do this now as opposed right. to... Right. So what kind of services through the chapter do you provide, and how do you navigate with the rest of it? So we, um, we have several key programs that um, are directly for our patients, such as our Abrams in-home care program that provides up to 12 hours a week of a home health aid for direct personal care um, based on their eligibility for the program. We also have our loaner equipment closet, um, which is key, and our accessibility program, which assesses for stair glides and ramping. Um, those are the three main ones that we really collaborate with the team during clinic to assess, like for the stair glide, assess for safety, or, you know, just last week at clinic, I met with one of our new patients, and I, I brought up about, like, how they're managing at home, and or do they need a home health aid? No, no, we're fine. And then at wrap-up later at the end of the day, the PT saying, oh, I got them to agree to a home health aid when they started. It's really, you know, the PT and OT are assessing specific things and really addressed it, investigate it further, and the patient was more agreeable. So then I'll follow up with them to say, you know, I know we mentioned it, it sounds like Joe, um, that you were talking to Joe and you think you would benefit. So that's, in that way, we collaborate all the time. And that's really the beauty of how the interdisciplinary team works. Because um, sometimes, you know, so I was probably one of the first or second people to see that patient that day at clinic. So as each discipline goes in, I think a lot of things happen. One, like maybe they become more open as the meeting goes on or like a little bit more reality sets in when the PT says, let me see you get up out of the chair or let me see you do this, like how you move your hand to brush your hair and they realize how challenging it is or they I'm sure as PT and OT they're asking a lot more specific questions like is that tiring things like that so um, it's really a collaborative effort and and then you know we also especially with Jefferson being a newer clinic have educated our team members about the services that we are able to provide and then we can assess if they're appropriate for our programs um, assess the community resources as well and what would be most appropriate. So we kind of help them navigate all of those systems and, and put something into place. Do you, with those programs, you don't just say, oh, we provide a stair glide or, oh, we help with ramping or we like, do you put a bug in the air? Like, oh, it sounds like, oh yeah. Uh, think and about this we, in the future. We have applications. So like at clinic, we'll, you know, if they're kind of like, well, I'm thinking about it, I'm not ready, then I'll give them the application and the program description to review. And, and they may call me in a month and say, I lost that. And I'll say, okay, and I email it to them. Or they say, we think we're ready. And I'll say, fill it out and send it in. Um, and sometimes if they're agreeable, right, a clinic will do the application right then. And, and I send it off. And then it, Wendy is the program manager for both, both accessibility and Abrams. And she'll do her thing. And usually it takes a few weeks. It's up and running. So, um, through, and a lot of times our programs, like especially Abrams, can be a stepping stone where they're introduced to this type of care at home. Because you can imagine for someone who's been independent their whole life to now rely on someone else for such intimate care, it's a transition. So it takes time. So maybe it'll start with Abrams two or three days a week while they're in process of applying for county services. And maybe in a couple months that that will come through and then Abrams would pull out. So it's, it is really such a group effort and we try to collaborate to get them what they need as soon as possible and then um, tweak it as it goes along as far as what they're eligible for. Yeah, a lot of them are independent or feel they still are. So it's, um, 
it's a tightrope in mm -hmm. terms of them accepting what right. help they need and then allowing strangers to come into their homes. So Which that's a good point. Yeah. Right. It is. And, you know, we I try to express my my I, you know support them and the understanding that it is uncomfortable to have a complete stranger yeah. come into your home to help you in the shower and so forth and acknowledge that they are resistant for that reason and we talk about that and and kind of go forward from there most of our people once they start yeah they are can't so stop. appreciative <laughs> yeah. and so grateful to have the care and and it's a you know it ends up being a very win-win type of situation yeah but right right the right. other piece of that can be the caregiver like say the wife is assisting with all this and they're like we're fine 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 and then you know ongoing conversations how but if you try it one or two days a week and they do and then the next time i see them their life's like the wife is like wow that real that two hours of someone being there really helped gave me a break to run out to the store or lay down or read a book just to have some mm -hmm. time to them or right. can we add another day you know so right. It really makes a difference for everyone because the other, you know, our focus isn't, ALS just doesn't affect the patient. It affects the whole family. So we're always trying to assess to, you know, to, to help avoid caregiver burnout and, and over time how hard this can be on everyone and, and what supports we can put in place. You know, we discuss like our um, support groups that we run that are really a fabulous way for people to connect, know they're not alone. A lot of brainstorming happens at these support groups. You know, this is something I'm, that I'm facing all the time. It's been really challenging, and someone might chime in, well, this is what we did that helped a lot. I just, you know, I've been emailing back and forth with a family, and um, and they're increasing the block of time that they have an aid. And, you know, hopefully that will, like giving three or four hours as opposed to just two will help give some relief for the caregiver. So it's just a constant reassessing, really, because with this disease, the, there's constant changes. There yeah. can be. You know, yeah. it depends on the progression yeah. or, or people plateau, and then they have another change. So right, it's right. just... You're constantly well, you just reevaluating. Call them and check in on them. Mm -hmm. That's sort of something we do all the time. Yeah. Constantly making contact with the families so that they know they're not alone. If you don't hear from someone, you get a little worrisome. And just so you, they know that you're checking in with them, that they're not alone. And caregiver burnout is so key. You know, we have to be careful not only of our client, but of our client's caregiver. Because if the caregiver is burning out, what good are they to their family member? So we're very, very. Uh, you know, aware of that and acknowledge that. Yeah, and yeah. That, and so yeah. with the home visit, that's so, that's crucial because you're going out to see the patient, but you're also seeing the caregiver and mm -hmm. see how they're doing, and mm -hmm. and you can really learn a lot by seeing them in the home and in their own environment. Yeah. Because it's not just about the burnout. You, you talk about someone being comfortable with a stranger yeah. helping them, but for caregivers, making them feel comfortable doing yeah. so. Yeah. That's, yeah. So many yeah, caregivers some, yeah. are very reluctant to, although they're completely exhausted. They're so reluctant to let go yeah. and yeah. release some of that responsibility to somebody else because they're so entrenched in what they're doing every day. And also, it's they love and yeah. control, control yeah. love, and all those things. Guilt. So there's a lot of factors that go it's into It's hard all to that. to let go of that control. Yeah, really. and I think and we've all been <coughs> a caregiver at some point yeah. in our life, and we know mm -hmm. what that's like. So we do have some empathy. Um, what's involved. Yeah. Um, so we can pick it up sometimes. Hey, Mrs. Jones, you're looking a little tired. Hey, Mrs. Jones, you know, it looks like you could use a little help. Yeah, you know, and that just helps us get our foot in the door. You know, you mentioned reassessing. And one of the things that really impresses me about what your team does 
and this is not just the social workers, but everyone at the clinics all the way up uh, and down is that there's no, and I never hear the attitude of this is how you do it. This is, this is how it's always been done. Mm-hmm. It sounds like when you go to those groups as you running the group, they're learning and you're learning. Oh yeah. yeah so it's like yes. your way of doing the care now is different than when you started two years ago or you started nine years ago. Totally. Absolutely. I mean, I run one of our groups and the, I mean, my, the members in my group just are so uh, generous in how they share, how they're managing day to day. And, you know, especially for new members that come and they're completely overwhelmed, that support that they receive from the other members within the group I, is so comforting and reassuring. And the sharing of ideas and resources and just the compassion that goes on within this group just is tremendous. It's so it's the power of groups, you know what I mean? So I run an online group for caregivers that can't get up you know, um, to like an Anne's group and the relationships that they have are just, you know, powerful. You know, I always have a topic in the back of my mind, but they always have their own topic, Right. you know. How does an online group work? Um, I just help, um, the families get onto their computer or download the WebEx Uh and then I send them reminders and, um, we identify a day of the month, the time we do it at lunchtime for some of the uh, caregivers that may work too. Mm -hmm. And so from 12 to one, once a month, they go online and we talk via video and audio and some folks can't figure it out. So we just had them on. (laughs) <laughs> and, well, that's, and that's a newer way of doing yeah, it. Yeah, so, you know, you got to go with the times. You right. know? Yeah. Like you said, constantly reassessing how you do things. Yes. And, and I'm sure you found that valuable. Because like you said, there's people who wouldn't, would love to go to the group, but they couldn't. So right. now you're able right. to have a different touch point. Right, right. So I remember we just did a, a, a speech and it started, this group chapter started with one support group. And now we're up to 13. So it shows you the kind of... Um, social media and expansion of things and how people go on the computer yeah. or website. You know, people are just becoming more social savvy, media savvy. Yeah, and we don't increase those groups just out of the whim. You you are going and they are not only assessing how you do your job, but where and what the needs are. Like, right. oh, we should, why don't we have this? Or why don't we have this thing? And then suddenly we do. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So um, I want to touch, touch on a couple things so we don't go too long, but... Um, you mentioned about social security disability and we don't need to go into all of this, but you guys have participated in advocacy. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Janie, have you done advocacy yet? I have not yet. Well, you should. I know I should. We can do it in other ways. But, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so you, but, but you guys all talk to families about getting involved in it in some way yes. and about the value of it. How's that? Cause that's a different conversation you can have that's different than just care. You know, yes. that's, a, that's a, you were talking about empowering people. Yeah. I mean, you have some families that are so resistant to the impact that the ALS has on their body, but they are still trying to fight for a cure, fight for rights, fight for advocacy. And those are the people that I'll say, wow, these are great for advocacy. You know, mm-hmm. they're good speakers. They, they're articulate. They want to make change. So there are some people that you can identify mm-hmm. yeah. that are going to be very powerful. And, and on the other hand, and people you didn't think would be can be yes the one another nice aspect about my group is I've had several people within my group who have participated in advocacy whether it was at Harrisburg or down in Washington DC so I asked them to share their experiences with the rest rest of the group to educate them and maybe Mm -hmm. encourage somebody else who might want to get involved and that's a really nice way of just their own personal stories and experience of what they've done 
really does kind of turn the light bulbs on for other people like oh yeah like I think I could get into that and I could yeah. be a part of that so it's really nice I also think for um, families and patients advocacy is a way you know this disease can make you feel helpless and losing control of so many things and it's a way to be proactive and and you're contributing and making a difference so it can be such a positive feeling like a, a win-win in that way you know yeah. that you are contributing and doing something making, several making of my a difference. patients have said this may not help me in my lifetime but it's going to help somebody else mm -hmm. further down the road and for me that for them it's huge yeah, yeah doing I know something positive since as a public policy director I mean I remember meeting folks who still to, to this day are thinking about them like how oh, Leo said they remember mm -hmm. earlier like I know this isn't gonna help me and like it, maybe it would have but other things sometimes the law does help immediately yeah, but yeah right. the research isn't is research down the years that's a process. tough perspective to have in mm -hmm. life and, well, I, yeah, it but shows a lot of there's several yeah. people within yeah. my group who say that quite often because I think it just it means something to them to be right. doing something that's going to give back for the future generations of our ALS patients and their family members. And as the two of you who participated, and then also other events, because Jane, you come to some other events too. Of course. Yeah, yes. it's it's nice to see people outside of oh, the, yeah. the medical the clinic, yeah. clinic yeah. And, and see them being empowered, whether it's ad advocacy or at the walk to defeat ALS, or at right. the bike ride, or at hot, hot chocolate. chocolate. Hot chocolate yeah. Yeah. Um, though right Some there, they're just eating events. <laughs> Yeah, But you see them, especially like when they're either doing advocacy, or they're raising money for a walk team or a ride team, you see that they're being empowered, and that's, yeah. that's going to be very yeah. rewarding. A smile, you know, you say, where do we get our gratification? Right. Right. Those are those moments, you know, yeah. um, the strength that these families give to us, mm -hmm. and their ability to smile, their ability still to think about making change and helping other people is just so powerful. It's yeah. like, it's amazing. You know, and where do they get this strength? On life, yes. It is. It's so, it does feel like a privilege to be a part of someone's journey. It's such an intimate time in their life that what they're going through and for us to be able to be a part of it. Yeah. I also find that, you know, it, it's, you know, They've come to us because they have ALS. We're part of the ALS Association. They go to a clinic that is an ALS certified clinic. But these are also people who have lived full lives, who have, right. you know, they have professions, they have families, they have children, they have experience, hobbies, knowledge. And it's also a privilege to learn about those aspects of their lives and learn more than just you have ALS. Right. I mean, there are so many of our, so many of our patients who have so many skills and qualities that just enhance what they're trying to do as a advocate for ALS research or, you know, things like that. So it's, I learn so much from them. Yeah. I mean, we're helping them and we're giving them support and tools and, 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 encouragement to get the things that they need but they they're helping me yeah i'm yeah. learning from yeah. these people so much and i admire so many of the things that they've done right yeah, i agree because so everybody it's a yes, to and that's a great them. way I mean, to put it in. everybody always says oh my gosh i don't know how you how do this work. Yeah. it's so depressing and then no, no, no. i am not depressed i, I mean know. there are moments yes it's very sad and it's easy there's certain people that you do really click with and it's very hard when you lose them and it's upsetting. Overall, I'd say this is the most positive experience I've ever had 
as a social worker. I agree, hundred percent. That's really great to me. Like I'm always joking. I'm listening to you. I try not to, but um. So that's. I think people when they listen, it's really important that they know that like the chapter and especially the frontline people. You guys, you're not just like, here's a hundred people on my list. I'm going to go talk to person A. I'm going to talk to. Adam Aronson because he's the first on my list. Like every person is yeah. that whole life yeah. experience. Everybody has a story. Everybody has a yeah. story. Everybody has a story and everybody wants to be heard mm-hmm. and everybody wants you to listen. Mm-hmm. And um, you learn because ALS doesn't discriminate. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. men, women, black, white, young, old, and we all have a story. Yeah. And we can all help each other. Yeah. You know? So on that, I'd like to finish with, you know, you've been, all have been here for a few years. Do you have any, like, you things that pop out at you as, like, your favorite memory or, you know, to necessarily mention a, a person, but anything that, like, sticks out to you, whatever you'd like to say, like, man, such and such was a really cool thing to do or my favorite thing to participate in? Um, I think for me... It can be multiple things, too. Yeah. One of the, um, like, my first experience at advocacy, it was just... For me, it was so empowering. It was amazing to see down in Washington, D.C., um, people represented from all 50 states. It was just so incredible. And then, um, you know, the day on Capitol Hill, it's, it's, you feel like you're part of history, mm-hmm. you know? And then, to, you know, I've been here almost nine years to see those changes, the things that we've asked for and fought for to, to come to fruition is just so rewarding. Yeah, and I, I think beyond our own priorities, when I see the healthcare debates happening, I think that hopefully what you've done in terms of we've done in terms of seeing having people see someone in a wheelchair, see mm-hmm. someone struggling, hopefully now when they're making those other decisions that aren't our priorities, right. they're like, Well, I better keep those people in mind too. Yeah. Not be a jerk. So I mean, I'm going to agree with Melissa. I think advocacy is just such a powerful experience. I've done it twice now, and um, the first year was, because it was the first time, was really incredible. Last year, we got to see the Steve Gleason movie, and that was so powerful. Um, And just, you know, being on Capitol Hill and being with others and hearing other people's stories, you know, it's very humbling, and Mm -hmm. I... I just feel very honored to be a part of it all. And I, I think another favorite thing of mine is, is clinic, working with our clinic teams mm-hmm. and collaborating with everybody. And just this, we all support one another because the, the, the end goal is to support this patient and their family and provide the best care possible. And when you're all working together to do that, there's a real satisfying feeling mm-hmm. that goes along with that mm-hmm. so i i truly enjoy that as well and, and my support group yeah i, I love them say, yeah i would say they're wonderful people group, yeah. and it's very rewarding to spend time with them yeah i imagine that the one thing that's really great about all of the clinics whether it's jefferson or hershey or meridian which is newer mm-hmm. is that they all share your perspective that it's, yeah. it's not just clock in clock out right remember but it seems yeah. like the whole team is like if they weren't on the same page you wouldn't want them on the team right and we all right. learn to mesh together you yeah. know they have their perspective we have ours right um i think my i've not been to advocacy um but i have been to um a national conference and i went to california in october and representatives from 49 states of social workers and people that run their own chapters was very empowering that mm-hmm. so many people are out there 
you know, with the same goal of wanting to find success and a cure for this disease and the um, different programs and services and how proud I am of our chapter mm -hmm. because we were so well represented. One of the, I think we are the largest and how innovative we are with some of our programs made me really, you know, feel empowered. So that was really amazing for me. Yeah, I know. I'm not trying to suck up to you guys. Yeah. But I often, <laughs> I often like when I look at anything going on in the world and, and or just generally, like, you know, a lot of things we solve just with, not just with social workers, but if you had more social sure. workers and things, like, so many problems if you just had someone tell them, hey, this is what you don't know you don't know, or connecting you to things, mm -hmm. you know, you can cut down on people's time a lot yeah, if, yeah. If beyond ALS. I, I feel fortunate being here, but I also feel like, man, I wish that other people could have this kind of wealth of care. Mm -hmm. I think if people help. stop to just listen mm -hmm. and hear what people have to say, that that's a start. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that yeah. we sometimes forget that in our world because we all have our own agenda. But if we stop to listen where people are and try and meet them, that, you know, I think that's a good direction. Well, that's a really great place to end. <laughs> I know, really, I think that hopefully everyone that's been listening, hopefully you found it worth taking a time to stop to listen to uh, Melissa, Ann, and Janie, um, in alphabetical order by last name. And <laughs> if you want to learn more about our services, how to get involved in connecting with people, please go to alsphiladelphia.org, and you can learn all about our programs, ask some questions, and, of course, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all at ALS Philadelphia. Thanks, guys, for taking time today. Thank for, you. Thank you. And March, thank you. March is Social Work Month. Yes. And thank you to all the social workers in the world. We, we really depend on you every day. Social worker for president. <laughs> and vice president, too. <laughs>